So I was uh, speaking about the question of how do you, how do you help someone who is, uh, whose worldview is struggling, and the question might, that they ask you might reflect that, the, the struggle that's going on. And I said one way is to increase the cognitive dissonance, that is, uh, amp, amp up the pressure on them to change their worldview. Because people won't abandon their worldviews easily, they need some pressure in order for it to change. Um, another way is to just pick on one bad idea that's standing behind the question and to challenge it, cause them, give them something to think. And the aim is not to win arguments, the aim is to um, bring plausible doubt into their thinking so they've got room to move, they've got permit, they can give themselves permission to rethink things. Um, so for example, if they ask this question about progress, you know, isn't, isn't the Quran just going to go through a reformation, you could say, look, history is not just always improvement, things don't always get better in history. You know, change doesn't always produce a better outcome for example, you know, Hitler, you know, National Socialism didn't make Germany better. Um, communism didn't make Russia better. I mean, millions were killed, the gulags were the result. Uh, think of Pol Pot or Mao Zedong and, you know, these, um, there's so much evidence in history that history can go bottom up, you know, belly up, things can go, get terrible. Uh, there's, there's nothing inevitable about progress. There's no national natural trend for ideologies or human political systems to gradually improve over time. Why would you think they would? Um, and that's you know just challenging that, uh, just naming it and saying, where does that come from? Why would you believe that? Another thing you might challenge is this idea that you can make a text mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, uh, basically, you, you could argue, it's a, the problem with it is that it's complex to argue, but you could say you, you can't just make the Quran mean, mean whatever you want it to mean. You know, it, it does have certain texts in it that are pretty clear. You know, it says a husband can beat his wife. I mean, how are you going to moderate that? Um, and what's interesting, when you, if, you, if you try and address this, that if you try and say that texts actually have a meaning, you can't just make them mean whatever you want to mean, People often have uh, defences against that idea. So, for example, former Australian Attorney General Philip Ruddock, a Christian, uh, he would say, um, he often used the argument, this argument, that you can reinterpret theology according to different times. And the example he used often, I heard him use it a number of times, was that the New Testament, he alleged, endorsed slavery, but Christians don't accept it today. So just because the Quran says something doesn't mean Muslims are bound uh, to follow it. It was a very poor interpretation, very poor exegesis, but it worked for him, you know. He was comfortable with it. He had his defence lined up against this idea that um, you can't just make a text mean whatever you want it to mean. And uh, to really to engage with Philip Ruddock, you'd need time to sit down with him and talk with him about what does the Bible actually say about slavery and uh, are you really seriously telling me that, that the writings of Paul and Jesus endorse slavery as a good thing, you know. Um, that takes some, some work, you, 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 but you can't easily do that just on the fly in a meeting. But you could um, inject question, a doubt, a reasonable doubt into someone's thinking uh, and you can make a few suggestions uh, around that issue. Um, um, one strategy uh, is to acknowledge that texts do need to be interpreted and there are different, those that concede something, because you need a, a bit of a platform to get into someone's position. Yeah, obviously interpretation is important, but you can't just make any text mean whatever you like. And the people that teach that view, 
they don't apply it consistently in their lives. So for example, if you're a postmodernist professor and you're being paid, I don't know, 150,000 a year to teach this sort of stuff in the university, and one day you go in and your payslip has your salary cut in half, you're not gonna say, oh, I can make that mean whatever I want. <laughs> oh, my salary hasn't changed, it's just a matter of interpretation. Texts just mean whatever you want them to mean. He's not gonna do that. He's gonna be furious and say, why have you cut my salary in half? Because he doesn't live by the things he teaches his students. He doesn't believe that text can be made to mean whatever you like. He only applies that to certain kinds of texts. And why is that, you know? He's a hypocrite. People do not live that way. If someone gives you a parking ticket, you don't say, oh, I'm a postmodernist, so I just interpret that however I want to, you know? <laughs> you end up in jail if you do that. You know, sometimes you have to give people a metaphor to understand how these things work. So sometimes I say a religion is like a, you know, a, a, a ship on a sea and there's a, there's a room in the ship and it has a compass in it and it has a map in it. And yeah, the captain might be going all over the shop, but actually at some point he's going to look at the map and he's going to look at the compass and say, oh, we should go that way and the ship will go in that direction. And that's why over time, even though people make all sorts of decisions in other ways, the core texts of a faith, like the Quran or the Bible, are very, very influential. The relationship is not completely direct. It can influence culture, but it does it over a long time. Each new generation reads again and they're changed by it. And I personally have seen many people's lives changed by reading the Gospels. It does make a difference. But you see, that idea that the texts actually change us, we don't just change the text to our own needs, that's very alien to secular people. They don't understand what it means to be changed by the Bible. But that's something you, you know, really need to be explained to people. It's so much, for example, of Islamic radicalism, you know, I could cite chapter and verse to all the things they say and do, because they're really trying to follow the book. So people can go in all sorts of directions with their faith, but nevertheless, the text keeps calling them back. In fact, that's what the idea of reformation is all about. The reformers said you should be constantly reforming, that is, keeping going back to the source. And the reality is, another thing I could say to that person is, you know, the highest authorities in Islam are very resistant to this idea of reformation. It's, there's no mood for it. There was recently a conference in Egypt just a few weeks ago on renewal in Islamic thought. And it was addressing this issue. And they talked about some of the pressure points that Muslims are feeling, like domestic violence issues and religious freedom issues and freedom of speech issues, um, terrorism and violence. and in the closing remarks, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar University gave a speech. Now, Al-Azhar University in Cairo is the kind of supreme Islamic university in the world today. It's still very prestigious. And Sheikh Ahmed Al-Tayeb um, gave a speech and he said, renewal is by no way possible concerning those texts that are irrefutable in their certainty and stability. So he's speaking about the Quran and the traditions of Muhammad that are accepted as reliable. There is no possibility of renewal with regard to those texts. And that's a very standard orthodox Islamic view, you know, that these texts are fixed. And, you know, another way of putting it to people, I would say, is there just isn't that movement for reform. You know, there are people who are reformers, but they, they, get, they get hung, they get shot, they, they exist in little sects. The mainstream is not like that. It's not, it's not going that way. Uh, the, the momentum for change is not in that direction. Most of the mosques in, in Britain are not led by people like that. They, there isn't a major movement. Like Reform Judaism is a big movement in Judaism, but there's, even though it's dying now as a liberal movement, 
but, um, but there's nothing like that in Islam. So these are just, for me, these are some of the strategies I would use to work away at the assumptions under that question. There's a lot of work to do. You can't do it all in one moment, but these are some of the strategies. And you can think through ways to answer people's questions in your life as well about these sorts of things uh, and find to gradually develop strategies to respond. And there are many other issues. I've been speaking about Islam because I've just kind of wanted to expose to you how I've struggled with uh, questions and tried to challenge people's worldviews to help them rebuild their worldviews in a better way, in a more truthful way. But there are similar issues that will apply, for example, with sexual and gender identity. Um, the idea that a human being's identity is defined by their sexuality, that is, who they want to go to bed with, or their gender identity, who they want to go to bed as, um, that lie is that our identity is, is somehow essentially defined by our sexual or gender preferences has become expect, accepted in our culture. So we speak of gay people, because that's their identity, you know, and the gay community. Um, it's almost like a subspecies of human being, almost like a race within humanity, these, these people, a different kind of a person. Actually, it was Freud that introduced this idea that the homosexual was a whole different subtype of person or type of person. Um, and that, that assumption needs to be challenged. That's a false belief. Because what you do sexually doesn't necessarily define you as a different type of person. And there's heaps of research around this issue. Uh, unpacking that in a way that ordinary Christians can critique and understand is really urgent and important for our times. And, you know, my identity as a person is not I am a heterosexual. My identity is I'm a Christian. I'm saved, you know. Um, my identity is not defined by my sexual preferences or what goes on in my head um, in those areas. It's, um, but to, to do that, you, you know, to unpack that, you need to engage with a, a whole set of bad ideas that often will support themselves, you know, um, and you need to apply biblical truth. We are, ultimately, our identity is defined by who we worship. And it's our response to the call to worship, which defines us, not our sexual or gender preferences. Um, and it's really interesting that at the heart of this idea about sex and gender is that the value of a person is defined by the choices they can make and their ability to make those choices. We exalt the value of choice as the fundamental value of what it means to be human. And you're defined by certain choices that you make. Um, we see the worth of a human being in those choices. And I mean, I think that's a lot due to our consumerist culture, that the advertisements are constantly telling us that our worth is found in the things we buy. And we're told that from the moment almost that we're born, that our worth is in our choices. We're, we're consumers, we're, we're schooled and trained to be consumers. And that idea that our choice is kind of sacrosanct, like our God is our choice, that then gets applied to our sexual activity and it becomes a, a little, little God too in, our, in, the, in the altar of our heart. We're worshipping our own choices. We become homo shopians, the species who chooses to buy stuff. And, you know, covetousness, instead of being prohibited in the 10th commandment, it's now become the very essence of human identity. You're defined by what you desire, who you desire to be like. Um, you know, by what you possess, by what car you drive, you know. And 
It's considered to be normal to desire your neighbour's wife or your neighbour's car or your neighbour's... He doesn't have a horse anymore, but there's got lots of other things that you're supposed to desire. And this tangled web is woven around us and we, we absorb it every day, almost through our skin. And all of that, in, it sets up a context in which a question like sexual and gender identity is controlled by these other factors. And we need to kind of step back and say, well, what does the Bible say about our identity? Who are we in Christ? And not, and somehow put aside these lies. Um, and sometimes the bad idea at the heart of a sick worldview is so basic that you need a kind of deep conversion of the soul to fix it. I mean, the idea that you would worship your own choices, that you, you are the measure of your own worth as a human being, that's very, very deep, you know. Um, we saw that in Brad Pitt's conversion to self-idolatry. I decided that I would, I would choose for myself, you know. Um, and that, to deal with that requires a deep, a deep conviction of sin, really. I'd like to give you another example from United States foreign policy. We're bouncing around a bit. Uh, for a period until recently, American foreign policy was held captive by the idea that the, the availability of democracy would transform societies. So there's a, there's a commentator in the US, David Goldman, who recently put it like this. He said, the conventional wisdom during the disastrous presidency of Boris Yeltsin held that post-communist Russia would evolve into a liberal democracy. China's growing reliance on market mechanisms to generate growth would accomplish something similar. Majority rule in Iraq would create a model Arab democracy, while the grotesquely misnamed, he said, Arab Spring would recall the American founding. You know, there was this revolution of freedom and democracy that was happening all over the world, and all these nations would become like America because they'd, everyone nearly wants democracy, and we love it, and, and they're just being held back by their terrible dictators or their, their history, and, and the American can go in and just remove Saddam Hussein, and then the Iraqis will say, yes, we'll become like America tonight, you know? Uh, and quite a number of disastrous foreign projects were embarked on at great cost with this idea. And that there was this thought that the world was on the verge of flowering into democracy everywhere. China, once it had wealth and business and, and markets, then it would just become a free society. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood was welcomed in Egypt, this kind of throwback to a really uh, conservative Islam, Islamic government. It was welcomed by the Obama administration because it was believed that this uh, change would, if you give the downtrodden power, that they would inevitably become more liberal and, and support democracy and they would change in, the, in their ideology. The people of Egypt disagreed and they were so thrilled when the army uh, kicked out the Muslim Brotherhood out from power. So this is based on you know, an, an unlimited optimism that we, uh, uh, in belief in progress, you know, that if only people have the opportunity, everything will evolve to be better uh, and it was also combined with some arrogance as well. Um, but there was a kind of optimistic belief that if you just gave people half a chance, they, they'd all adopt, they'd be like us, because we're all much the same, aren't we? Human beings are the same, we all want democracy, we all want freedom. Uh, just give them a chance and it'll happen. And this was shattered by the rise of ISIS, the disintegration of nations in the Middle East, the, the hardening in China and Russia. And these two uh, beliefs that, that drove that um, uh, there were two beliefs that drove that that were, were at fault to this. So this is what I want to talk about, these two, two beliefs. One is the belief that human beings are fundamentally good and they'll choose what's good. And democracy is good, so people will inevitably want to have a democratic system. 
Um, and this is the belief in the innate decency of everybody. So we'll go in there and we, our intentions are good and they'll be pleased to have us and they will become good too when we take away the baddies because there's only a few baddies and most people are good. And the second bad belief was that um, cultures are basically all the same anyway, or there's not that, not that much difference between them. So um, it's not, they're not so different that it could stop this program from happening of, of bringing democracy. It, it's assumed that people will act in similar ways if they have similar opportunities. Another way of putting it is there's no really such thing as bad cultures or good cultures. It's sort of all good and culture itself arises from the unity and commonality of human beings and because of that there's no, there couldn't be a cultural issue for Iraqis in embracing democracy because, you know, all cultures are basically similar anyway. Of course we have different food and that's really wonderful that we have different food but basically we're all decent and culture's good, you know, just get to know other people and you'll see how good they are really. Um, but the problem is that's not true. Um, it's just not the case. Uh, cultural differences are huge. I mean, Marxism has this view too, that there's one kind of grand narrative that will apply in every nation and every culture, that the workers will be liberated and, and some sort of decency will be restored to the world. Feminism does something similar. Patriarchy is at fault. And of course, the same problems will occur in all sorts of cultures. So there's various ideologies that are really strong in the West that blind people to the power of cultural differences and how important they are and how aligned they are with morality, with ethics, with sin and evil and goodness, and they, and they make a big difference. Um, it's really interesting that the Chinese intellectuals in the late 1980s, um, they asked the question, what made the West great? What made the West great? It's interesting, isn't it? The Chinese have struggled you know, they were very poor for a long time and they're, they're looking around at the world and they see, gee, the West has just dominated everybody. Why are we, the great Chinese people, the centre of the world, why aren't we great? Why are they great? What's happened? It's a very uh, rational and sensible question to ask. What's the secret of that success? They might have said, why is South Korea doing well and why is North Korea in a mess? Um, and they concluded after a lot of reflection and research that um, the American constitution and Western democracies, the systems, could only be successful because of the influence of the Christian foundation of those societies. In other words, it was the spiritual foundations that make those, those systems work. To give you a crude example with regard to democracy, there have been a number of cases where democracy has been applied and it's produced dictatorship. So, I mean, Hitler was one example. He was voted into power democratically. Um, the Palestinian Authority in Gaza had an election and Hamas was voted in and that was it. No more need for democracy. You know, they believe in democracy once. And that's enough, you know. Um, so democracy actually can be very dangerous. It can set up tyranny. All it takes is evil people to win the, win the election. And that's not so difficult, actually. In, in Iraq, they gave democracy to Iraq, which upset the balance of power. And what happened was that the Shiites had been having more children for quite some time after having been a minority and they'd become a majority so that the, the new Iraq was now dominated by the group, the Shiites had been suppressed and were acting as proxies of Iran. So you get a whole different set of oppression and uh, inequalities set up and instability as well. Uh, majority rule has, uh, democracy has just transferred dominance from one tribe to another, one religious group to another. 
it hasn't produced a free society, it just perpetuated problems. And actually often in the Middle East, countries are more stable when minorities are in charge, because when majorities are in charge, they crush the minorities, but when minorities are in charge, they, they try and they're often a little bit more circumspect. Anyway, it's complicated. Um, Lawrence Mead, uh, an American writer, argued that the US political system depends upon a culture of individualism, but with limits. Uh, and Christianity basically projects that. Freedom, but with boundaries. Both Christianity and Judaism, they promote the idea of freedom, but it's balanced by a call to people to live according to a higher ideal, a morality that guards against selfishness, the principle of loving your neighbour as yourself, is put in alongside um, the, this passionate belief in freedom. There's a, there's a balancing of these different ideals. Um, Christianity promotes freedom, but it also provides resources and strategies to limit the power of sin. And that the system is designed to sit and make sense based on certain understandings of the human being. You know, the, the Christian view is that human beings need to be saved from sin. And so you set up boundaries that, uh, that, that limit those potential for freedom, but your idea, ideal is to give them freedom, but within in limits. The Islamic view is very different. The Islamic view is that human beings need guidance. So the state's role is to impose righteousness on people by force. Um, I've had some really fascinating conversations with the Iranians. About uh, seven years ago, a group of 30 or 40 Iranians came to me in, in the church I was serving at, and they said, we've become Christians. Will you be our pastor? We can't find a church that will pastor us. There was a young woman who was a really gifted evangelist and she led them all to the Lord and they were having revival meetings each, each Wednesday night, but they didn't have anyone to look after them. So what do you do if 30 or 40 converts, recent converts come to you and say, look, we've just come to Australia, will you be our pastor? I, I could have said, oh, I'm just too busy, you know, I've got lots of churches to look after, but I said, okay, I'll give it a go. God seems to be in this and it's been an amazing journey. And I've been really interested to see how to build health into people's worldviews, emotional worldviews and how they understand the church, how they function together, and that's been a really fascinating journey. But as I've talked with them, I've really been convicted about profound differences between cultures and, and their worldviews, the emotional worldviews that underpin those differences. One of my Iranian friends said this to me. He said, here in Australia, you assume that someone has good intentions unless proven otherwise. In Iran, we assume the opposite. You assume others have hostile intentions unless proven otherwise. So there's proverbs in Persian, the language of Iran, or also called Farsi, which promote this idea. So there's a proverb that says, hit him before he hits you, or eat him before he eats you. So how does that work? Well, you can imagine your son comes home and he says, this kid's giving me a hard time at school, dad. What do I do about it? So the dad says, just go and punch him in the nose before he punches you. Oh, okay. Off he goes, he beats the other kid up. Not to strike first is stupidity and weakness and folly. You should take advantage of the other person before they take advantage of you. Then you'll be successful in life. Because if you don't do it, he'll do it to you and you'll, you'll be done. You know, you, you lost your opportunity. This is clever and honourable to do this. This is proverbial wisdom. It's embedded in the language. Everyone knows this proverb. You, you, you get it through your mother's milk. A child learns this from their earliest years. And we've had cases in the church where fathers will tell their kids to bash up other kids at school as a way of dealing with issues and teach them how to do it. 
It's, a, it's an ethic based on an assumption of hostility, that the world is not safe, that other people are bad, and you have to overpower them through force of your own will and your own, your own strength. And I was speaking to a Russian friend and explaining this, and he's a Christian. He said, well, we have the same view in Russia as well. You know, enemy until proven otherwise. Now, just think about this. You have a whole nation built on the idea that everyone is your enemy, unless you can prove that you're a friend. You don't have a lot of friends, mostly they're enemies. And what does that do to people living in the midst of this hostility? And imagine the president of that nation uh, making, trying to work with the president of a, of a Western country where the basic assumption is goodwill. How do they resolve their issues? You can imagine a lot of potential for misunderstanding would take place. Uh, but these are really deep problems in the culture. One of my Iranian friends, he said, I said, why did you come to Australia? It's been really hard for them. The government won't give them permanency. It's terrible, actually. They're really suffering. And he said, I didn't want my son to grow up in a cruel society and to be trained to be cruel like everybody else. I, I just couldn't bear it. Another tendency in Iranian culture, also based on their emotional worldview, is the tendency to take pleasure in someone else's failure. So you're walking down the road and just ahead of you, you see a, a, a gentleman falls over and gashes his face on the road. How do you respond? How do you respond in Australia if you see someone who falls over and hurts himself? Say, oh, oh, I'm sorry for him. How can I help you? In Iran, what they said to me, you feel happy. I said, oh, why do you feel happy? He said, well, it wasn't you. And you're doing better than them and they're down in the dirt and here you up here, you, you feel great. If you hear that someone else has failed their exam, that's, that's great. Oh, Bill failed, fantastic, I passed. Now, what does this do in a church if you have to feel superior to other people and every opportunity at feeling superior is grabbed like a hungry person, like a morsel of food? Well, it means that if I appoint Ali to be a leader of the connect group, of the small group, and you know, Muhammad wasn't appointed, he is offended. I have humiliated him because I didn't appoint him as the leader. And so he'll come and complain to me and he'll complain to the other people in the church as well. Ali's been appointed a leader, but I haven't been appointed. Mark's not being fair, he's showing favoritism. That's a terrible choice. Ali's a bad person and off you go. What happens to churches like that? They just keep splitting and splitting. And if you've got four Iranian churches in a city, they all don't trust each other and they don't want to work together because they all want to feel superior. And if they're not feeling superior, they feel bad about themselves and they're suffering. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do business in a culture like this too because you can't trust people. Uh, and it's difficult to feel safe. It's hard to build a life. It's hard to build a life. One of the strongest things that the Iranians have said to me over and over again when they've come to Christ is that, when I came to church, I felt peace. And, you know, the immigration officials who interview them, you can, I can tell that they think, oh, these, these Iranians, they're always talking about peace. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about freedom from all that. The hostility, the anxiety, the stress, the pain, being in a place where people are loving each other. And we've had a really amazing time finding keys to rebuild people's worldviews and to teach them from the scriptures not to be like that. But the point I want to make is that the cultures are different. So you're not going to just go into Iran, get rid of the Ayatollahs and tell them here's a democracy, you know, just vote your leaders in because the people are broken, so the system's not going to work, you know. And 
Uh, that's one of the bad ideas in our culture, that the cultures are all basically the same. And it's a threat to us to even engage with it because we, we've invested in multiculturalism and that will work if we're able to influence people coming into our culture and there's some sort of commonality, but at the point at which the momentum of other cultures, these other worldviews is too great and they haven't been redeemed or changed by being in our context, um, then that could be really difficult. So it's a difficult truth for people to absorb. There's another issue as well uh, here, and that is the loss of memory, loss of memory about where we've come from, loss of a sense of true sense of history. Uh, a great weakness in Australian culture is that we don't understand that certain fundamental attributes of our culture, such as the sense of obligation to do good to others, including people that we don't know, that this is not universal to all cultures. We think it's just a universal human trait that people will be decent to others. Uh, but it's not inevitable at all. This characteristic of our culture is the result of efforts of many people, I think over centuries, to in instill Christian values. It's part of our Christian heritage to give people grace, to extend grace to people, to assume they're innocent until proven guilty. guilty. It's part of our Christian heritage that we would treat others as we would wish to be treated. Now this makes, to say this makes atheists or secular people really annoyed because they say, oh, you're saying Christians are superior or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, some of the good characteristics of our culture are the result of generations of influence coming from a, a Christian context. Um, and one of the struggles that our, our culture is facing is that it, it's, it's throwing out things that are really important. It's, it wants to hang on to the idea of grace in some kind, but it's abandoning truth. Um, we, we, we love the idea that you'd accept anyone and everything, but we hate the idea that you'd speak the truth uh, into, into situations. And grace without truth is dangerous. It just doesn't work. It creates abuse and vulnerability to abuse. Um, I want to mention a few um, falsehoods that, that, um, that trouble our culture uh, today. Um, I need to be careful not to go too quickly. <laughs> um, some, some different lies and, uh, that are significant, because you ask, you know, how can we do this? How can we be attentive? So I want to point out a few of the lies and just listen to them. I've, I've given you some already. Uh, you know, that all people are good, all cultures are the same. Um, history's always going, getting better. You know, we're all progressing, we're evolving. So one lie, of course, which you'll, you know, would be aware of, is that all religions are the same. That's very widely held. And it's very convenient. It's a very convenient lie because one of the implications me is that um, you don't have to follow any religion because they're all the same. <laughs> You know, if all religions are the same, you've got better things to do on a Sunday morning than go to church, I can tell you that. And um, what, they, what this view doesn't understand is that different faiths make different claims about what's true, they make different claims about what's right and wrong, and they produce radically different societies. Um, you can give extreme examples, but there are many everyday examples. I've been speaking about the effects of Islam in Iran, actually, the culture of hostility embedded in Iranian culture. Um, this is true of political ideologies as well. Uh, consider North and South Korea. They share originally a culture, a language, a single um, sort of national identity, but they're completely different societies because they've got different political ideologies. 
and the same is true about faith. Um, atheists don't like this idea that religions generate different societies, um, although some in Europe are, are coming to terms with it as they see, they're beginning to feel more threatened by Islam than they've been by Christianity. Um, and they've rejected the idea that there are fundamental differences between faiths and that faith influences people to behave differently. I've mentioned to you that feminists tend to blame everything on patriarchy, so that also obliterates differences between faith. Actually, Islam and Christianity are very, very different in the way they treat women, um, although there is domination of women in both religious traditions. But the way Islam treats women is a whole different order of magnitude, very different. But for people who are committed to this view that religion is not really the issue, it's just a symptom, uh, they will downplay that. And one of the effects of that is that uh, women who are abused or, or exploited in Islamic context, their, their plight is, uh, is under-emphasised, ignored, overlooked. The feminists don't speak up on behalf of the child brides or the, the battered Muslim women because that threatens their fundamental worldview and their narrative. And then an injustice happens because of that. Um, and there's also hand in hand with this belief that all religions are the same. There's a lot of ignorance about faith. Um, that's one of the things I'm worried about with the religious freedom law that the government is seeking to bring in. It's not that I'm opposed to the idea of a religious freedom law, but I, I think that the judges of Australia generally don't get religion. They don't understand it. And the risk is they'll make all sorts of bad decisions because they just don't, they don't have a clue how faith works. And there's a, there's a real need to communicate that to our society. And people don't want to hear about the Christian faith either. Um, so that's a challenge for us is that, that the people believe religions are basically the same, either they're evil or they're innocuous or they're good, but they're basically the same. Um, and they're also ignorant as well. Um, now here's an interesting one. Um, there's a belief, uh, this is a really interesting one, it's worth thinking about. There's a belief that if you get rid of ignorance, you will think better of other people. That ignorance is the cause of hatred and, and bigotry. That racism is caused by ignorance. And if only you get to know other people, things will be better and there won't be that rejection. You won't judge others if you really knew them. This is a familiar idea to you, isn't it? It's part of the culture. Um, and uh, that's the response, you know, in schools and, and children are being taught this too, that just take the time to get to know someone and you won't be prejudiced against them. So you overcome racism by familiarity. And it's interesting to trace the history of these ideas. I'm going I'm to challenge this idea in a little while, but let me just trace its history first. Um, this idea is really most powerfully expressed in the book by Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, this is a book about racial prejudice, and, um, and there's, there's prejudice at different levels that's applying. And in the final sentence of the book, the young girl, Scout, tells her father Atticus about a character in the story, in the novel, who's been misunderstood and maligned. People have thought badly of this guy. And Scout says that when the other people finally saw him, that he hadn't done all those things they thought. Atticus, he was real nice. And Atticus says, most people are real nice when you finally see them. Okay? So basically people are good, they're nice, 
If only you knew them well enough. And if only we overcome our ignorance, we will discover that everything is fine. So the solution to the perception that Islam is a threat is just to make friends with Muslims and then you'll find out that it's all fine, you know? That's an example of a response. When you finally see someone, they're really nice. Now, this book, To Kill a Mockingbird, has been incredibly influential. Um, it, it, it's, it's a textbook that the children have been required to read at school in their millions. I don't know if any of you read it at school. A few of you, maybe they've got other things to read these days, I'm not sure, but certainly it's very widespread in the US and, and, and across Australia too. It's like a self-evident truth. If you understand better, you will accept. And it's a heresy to challenge that. And it's very powerful. And it actually explains a lot of the mistaken behaviours sometimes of leaders and, and people in influence. Why is it a problem, this belief? And there's a lot of truth in it as well. Sometimes ignorance does cause hatred. So there's a truth in that. But accurately dispelling ignorance doesn't necessarily make you accept the other person's beliefs more. Like if you get inside the head of a rapist, does that mean you'll accept rape better? No, it doesn't. If you get inside the head of a, you know, the mind of a culture of abusive women, will you accept that more? Of course not. Um, deeper familiarity with somebody or with, the, with a culture doesn't necessarily mean you respect everything about the culture. I love Iranian people and I've devoted huge amounts of time over the last seven years to helping them. I've assisted 80 or more people with immigration claims. I've spent vast amounts of energy loving them, but there are things about Iranian culture that are really broken. And my increasing familiarity with the culture doesn't make me respect it more. And actually, they know that it's broken too. <laughs> they would be really troubled if I was walking around saying, oh, I've come to know Iranian culture and it's a beautiful culture in every respect. It's not true. Something's, you know, sometimes the more you know about something, the worse it looks. You know, getting to know Hitler better doesn't make you have a positive regard for Hitler more. It should have the opposite effect. And ignorance actually can make you feel positively about something that you shouldn't. You could be ignorant about what your neighbour is doing and think he's a great guy or great woman, you know. But if you really knew, you might not think that anymore. I mean, lots of examples of that. Abusers cover themselves by a cloak of respectability and actually dispelling ignorance might not help you love them more. See, dispelling ignorance doesn't have a necessary uh, outcome in terms of liking or disliking or increasing respect or not. It depends on the person. It depends on the culture. Getting to know what other cultures are like doesn't necessarily mean you respect them more. And people that believe that, they believe that everyone is good and all cultures are good, and so the more you know about it, the more you realise it's good. So there's a lie behind that, you know. Um, there's a, some really tragic events recently, and one was um, that, 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 that bring this into sharp kind of uh, light, really. And one was that an American couple, Jay Austin and Lauren Gergahan, were killed by ISIS sympathisers in July in 2018. They were cycling in Tajikistan. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to go on a cycling tour in Tajikistan. Maybe it's a really safe place. And, and atrocities can happen in all sorts of places. But it was really interesting that Jay Austin had written in his blog, he said, by and large, human beings are kind. Self-interested sometimes, myopic, meaning they can't see things clearly sometimes, but they're kind. 
generous and wonderful and kind. People are great. And then he wrote, evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow human beings holding values and beliefs and perspectives different from our own. So evil is a fake idea that's been invented for us to deal with our ignorance. We are ignorant of them and we don't know what wonderful people they are, so we think they're evil because it helps us process our ignorance. And he, he was like, I'm going to prove this by cycling around the world and discovering the incredible generosity of human beings, which I will, because they're all good. And he did experience that. People showed him amazing kindness and the two of them, and there's a lot, um, there's a lot of that that he experienced until one day um, some ISIS supporters uh, smashed into him and three other cyclists in a car and they cut their heads off. And he's the one who said, evil is a make-believe concept. It's tragic, really, and it underscores the danger of a bad idea, of a false idea. Um, it's dangerous. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. These two cyclists, they believed in grace, but they hadn't combined it with the truth that human beings are by nature sinners and they're not inherently good. And yes, there is great goodness in people, but it's not going to be uniformly like that. And there are people that will do bad things in all sorts of places. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent serious time in the Soviet Gulag, had every opportunity to see what evil did to people, how really decent people were turned into torturers, and decent people were turned into morally broken people in the Gulags. And he said, in his conclusion to that experience, he said, I learned that the line between evil and good runs right down the human heart. It's really interesting, you know, he had every reason to locate evil in other people because he'd been abused, his life destroyed by a stupid decision, by an evil government. He could have blamed everyone, you know, his, his torturers, his abusers, the, the other people, the guards, whatever. Instead, he said, there's a problem in me and it's evil and it's, it's right down the middle of my heart. What difference would it have made to that young couple if they thought actually evil is real and it's in people's hearts? And if they'd listened to the testimony of a man who'd had every opportunity to understand that um, evil as a theory isn't caused by ignorance, that it's actually uh, a reality. It's very interesting, you know, my experience is that people that grow up in healthier societies, maybe more Christian, kinder societies, they're more likely to have these naive views about humanity. But everyone that I've met, you know, that's grown up in Iran believes in evil. They believe in, in the evil of human beings. They know that. It's, you don't survive if you don't understand that. But we, we have a kind of luxury of being able to believe that everyone will be decent. And, you know, if you are friendly and loving and you reach out, it's amazing what goodness you can discover in people, but it's not going to deal with the fundamental problem. Another, so that's the bad idea that, um, the killer mockingbird idea that if you get rid of ignorance, you'll only feel better about other people. It doesn't always work that way. It's not necessarily the case. It's helpful, especially if your dislike is prejudiced, based in prejudice, but sometimes dispelling ignorance can cause you to be more troubled about the others. Um, another bad idea is that uh, extremism is the problem and moderation is the solution. You should be moderate. Um, this is a very old idea that being extreme is not good. Aristotle warned against it being too passionate about anything. And a guy called Eric Hoffer wrote a book in the 50s called The True Believer. 
And he argued that mass movements are basically interchangeable. So an extremist could be a communist or a fascist. They have a kind of personality that, that tends them toward being extreme, and they would just pick up whichever ideology they need in order to live this extreme life. So the ideas are not important. What's important is the tendency of a person to be an extremist or moderate. And, um, and that's become very embedded in our society. You shouldn't be an extremist, should you? You should just be moderate. But have a think about that. Have a think about that idea. What does that mean? Moderation or laxity in belief actually can be really destructive. Um, in medical surgery, suppose you'd like, you need brain surgery, you get, you're going to go to the hospital and say, well, I, I just don't want someone who's too extreme about hygiene, I, I just want a moderate surgeon. <laughs> Why is that important? Because there's a truth issue that infection is real and you need someone who's rigorous and clear. And the problem is people put religion in, that, in, the, in the extreme basket and if you're serious about your faith, there's something wrong with you, you know. Um, but I think it's more like the brain surgeon, actually, or the pilot of the plane. I, when I'm, I'm, I'm flying to India tomorrow, and I don't want a, a moderate pilot. I want an extremely careful pilot, you know. <laughs> ideas that are good and true deserve strong, committed support. And bad ideas should be opposed. Lukewarm response is not good. So just don't buy into this extremism narrative. It's used just to shut people down, and it's not helpful. I sometimes have the image of the world, you know, with the, a flat earth with the oceans going off the edge and if you stay in the middle on your boat, you're okay, but if you go to the edge, you might fall off. And so it's a view of the world like this, but it's not like that. The world's not like that. And this is very important because we feel the pressure to be moderate according, which means other people's basically saying we should shut up or not present our views, and then we can end up lacking conviction in the truth. And ultimately, it's a truth issue, so you need to be clear and rigorous and confident in, your, in speaking the truth in love, your grace and truth. But don't, let, don't sacrifice truth for the sake of being more gracious. And I mean, I, I get really troubled when I hear people speaking about being moderate, you've got to be moderate, you know, and, and I, you just press them a little bit more and you find the truth's having a holiday in their life. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not a helpful track to go down. So let me um, make some concluding remarks and then we'll throw it open for conversation. I've tried to highlight for you some of the lies that are embedded in our culture. You know, all religions are the same. If you get to know someone, they'll be good. People are basically good. Progress is moving us all forward in history. You know, these are really deeply embedded views in our, in our society. And really to address this, which I haven't done, you need to kind of, for each of those, you need to look at what the Bible says about it. What does the Bible say about human beings? Are they basically good? Is that the answer, you know? Um, what does the truth, what does revealing the truth do to you in your perception of an issue? Do you, do you always feel good about something if the truth is revealed? How does that work, you know? Um, what is culture? Is culture neutral? Or is it damaged? Is it, is it damaged because human sin is damaged? Is there a, an image of God somehow reflected in culture, but also destruction as well? Uh, and, and so you shouldn't expect cultures to be just neutral and good. You, in fact, they need to be redeemed. They need to be transformed by the gospel. 
uh, and how do you think through that? Are you aware of the, the evil in your culture? Are you aware of the areas of our culture that actually are falling down, our disregard perhaps for the unborn or our disregard for the aged because they, they can't make meaningful choices anymore the way they did earlier in life, so we regard them as dispensable and push them to one side? You know, where are the areas in our culture that you need to, to kind of challenge from a biblical perspective? Are you thinking that through or are you just going with the flow, you know, going with the multitude? So let me say a few things about leaders and being a leader. Being a, and when I say a leader, I mean a change agent for good, a, a, a force for good in your world, in, in your environment, wherever it is, in your marriage, in your workplace, amongst your family and your friends. Firstly, you need to be, have some skill in, in, in dealing with worldviews. Firstly, you need to be able to understand how other people think and set aside your frame a bit to do that. So it takes some practice and listening too but also to be able to identify the lies. I can see this person is coming from here and that's not true because the Bible presents the truth about that matter. You, so you, you begin to learn what's under the iceberg instead of just saying, oh, there's another tip, you know? You think, oh, there's something under there, what is it? Also, you need to be resolved to be an agent for change. And that means challenging worldviews, it means helping people find new ones, it means developing skill to help people move into Christ, to be transformed by Christ. Um, you need to know how to put your finger on the points where the worldviews fail. You know, for example, if you're talking about communism, there's amazing evidence in the failure of communism, which is that the communist societies and leaders killed so many people and the disregard for human sin meant that really wicked people got into power and there were no checks and balances to prevent that from happening. And you know, if you meet someone who thinks, oh, communism was such a good idea, it just wasn't implemented properly, it's good to be able to answer that and, and speak, it, speak out where is the evidence for that. Um, sometimes you need to know how to just ramp up the cognitive dissonance to put more pressure on someone's worldview so that they get to the point where it's unbearable and they're willing to seek uh, another alternative. And it's not necessarily cruel. It could be the kindest thing you do to someone is to challenge their, their perceptions about, um, about their worldview and, and make, the, make it worth their while to consider an alternative. You need to be able to offer an alternative. So you need to have an understanding of a Christian worldview and how to, you, how to present that to people in a way that's winsome and, and deals with their questions and, and can win them over. You need to know how to, when you're speaking the truth, to do it with grace. Um, because you need both as well. You, you, you know, when you're engaging in this, you're actually helping people find the truth. And you need to do it from a position of love and not of judgment. It's actually quite traumatic and painful to have your worldview challenged and undone. And, um, and people's tendency will be to defend their worldview. So you, you shouldn't be offended by that or, or surprised by that. That's a sign that you're getting through. And, and you, you should have a love for the person and, their, and who they could be if God would uh, work in their hearts and change their worldview. You need to take responsibility for people in your care and for the culture. You have a responsibility to care for the culture. I love gardening and I must admit, every time I see a weed, my inclination is to pull it out. You know, I was at my son's place and he had this beautiful collection of weeds yesterday and I just bent over and pulled them out, you know. And you need that kind of desire. That's, that's, that weed is my responsibility, you know. Someone has said that, it's not, it's not really true. Let me, I just want to sow some doubt, some reasonable doubt into that person's heart so they can begin to rethink that through. Um, also, you need to take responsibility for speaking prophetically truth into, the, into, the, into your context. 
speaking the truth of God in a way that can challenge and transform the, the perspectives of people around you. These, by the way, are all powerful tools for evangelism and for discipleship and for pastoral care as well. Um, you need to systematically replace lies with truth. If someone gets rid of a lie that's been very convenient to them and built into their worldview and their life, they need a truth to replace it with. You don't want to leave someone with an empty house. Jesus said, you know, you can kick a demon out and he comes back with a bunch of others. And I think lies are a bit like that. You, you, people need robust and, and defendable truths in order to uh, have a full house. <laughs> so if you get rid of a lie, you need to be ready to build the truth as well. It's, it's, not just, it's not just a matter of destroying, it's a matter of replacing and, and renewing people. Um, and also, you will find pushback. People will struggle with your issues. Um, I, years ago, I wrote a blog post which was called A Dozen Bad Ideas for the 21st Century. I've spoken about some of them now. And one person who was blogging, he didn't like what I said at all. He was really upset about it. And he said, oh, jury is saying that if you meet a Muslim on the road, you should kill him. <laughs> that was very funny, actually. This is just a completely weird and ridiculous thing that he would say, but I thought, he's upset. You know, he's really upset by what I've been saying. He, he can't answer it. He, he's, he's struggling with it. And so he's just put up the, put up the blinds and, so I'm not intimidated by that. You know, that's a sign that something is getting through even if, there's a, even if there's a rejecting response. So just be ready for that. Don't be surprised. You know, it's painful for people to find their deeply held views um, are not accepted. You know, it's a, they can react quite strongly. Don't be surprised by that. You need to be gentle and persistent and clear and loving and gracious, but, but, but don't let that go. You know, you're, you have responsibility to speak the truth in love. Jesus full of grace and truth. Don't be just a grace Christian or a truth Christian. Be a, lo a love and truth Christian. They belong together and they'll be powerful in your hands as you, as you do that. I'm going to stop there. We've got about 20 minutes, I think. Is that right for questions? Yeah, We'll see how we go. I love questions, off the wall questions, on the wall questions. Talking about the clash of culture and how they're so different, do you have sort of a, an opinion or some ideas around sort of immigration and allowing different groups into the country? So from like an Islamic into sort of a Western nation and because this is something that you hear on the news and different points of view, but yeah. Well, I think um, immigrants are a blessing in many ways, and we're a nation of immigrants. And I'm, I'm caring for a couple hundred members in this church who are, would love to be accepted, and they'd be great citizens, actually. But for various reasons, they're being rejected, and it's quite cruel. Uh, so I have a lot of sympathy. Um, I think a nation needs a clear uh, set of, it needs a clear identity that it projects to newcomers. So. We should be explaining to people that this is how things work in our society. These are, these are principles we follow. But we have trouble even articulating what those are. And we allow people to, to lie to us in the way that, on the basis that they come. And I think also that uh, there have been times when we should have been more robust in kicking some people out. I mean, we've, we've allowed some Islamic preachers in who should never have been permitted, uh, and some of the things they've taught. So I'm actually quite sympathetic to the idea of someone breaks the law or incites hatred 
and they've still got a citizenship somewhere else that we revoke their Australian citizenship. There's a, it's a natural kind of human understanding. There's a covenant between a citizen and the country that they would somehow support and love the country and be faithful to it without, without suspending their right to speak up and to criticise it. But if people aren't, aren't showing that faithfully, then we should be robust in dealing with it. I think, by and large, the Australian government's been fairly careful with immigration over the last 20 years. We, we have a points system. We accept people who are um, in the normal immigration course of immigration who are fairly going to be fairly good citizens. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not an anti-immigrant person, but I, I think it's right for us to be selective and careful who we admit. I wish we could accept more Christians from the Middle East. All of the, the structure of the United Nations support for refugees and those in-country um, refugee camps, they're all, they're all biased against Christians. So shockingly low rates of Christians are accepted from those refugee populations. So uh, our government has tried to address that. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really a deep concern to me. I think countries that allow their, their cultural base to be overwhelmed by too many other people will suffer greatly in the long term. Like, I think you can absorb and transform a certain number of people, but if it begins, reaches a critical point, then you, you, you have some severe problems. So this is very hard to talk about with people because you sort of sound like a, a, a racist or a hatred of foreigners or something, but I think it's common sense that, that there's, we have a limited capacity. I think, you know, for Muslims coming in, we really need to be pretty clear about certain things. You know, polygamy is not permitted. Um, underage marriages are not permitted. You know, we, 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 could do, we could do things to improve that situation. There was a case in Sydney where um, a 24-year-old man, I think, married a 12-year-old girl. Her, his, her father was a convert to Islam, and uh, it was just done in a private ceremony. And now the Australian Marriage Act says that if you conduct a wedding uh, that you're not licensed to do, the penalty is $500. So the cleric who, uh, who conducted that marriage, that was an illegal marriage of a... 24-year-old with a 12-year-old was fined $500. And in my view, he and the witnesses to the ceremony and the father who, in Islamic law, gives permission for the marriage uh, and the groom should have been put away for three years or more, you know. So there's, there's, there's things, and we also have reached a stage here in Australia where we permit um, polygamy as long as they don't register the later marriages. And Centrelink even recognises that. So we have polygamy actively in Australia and, and, and other European countries as well. Uh, and it's even, we've even built our systems, social systems around it. But we've forgotten the whole purpose of the marriage law was to prevent that sort of unregistered marriages. So um, that's a case of amnesia. We've forgotten where we came from. So I think there's things that we could do much better. And the, the, there's a real problem if you, if you have un kind of uh, a lot of immigration without thought and care about what messages you're sending to people when they come into the country. This is how it works here. These things are not permitted. Female circumcision is not permitted. You go to jail if you do it. Um, these are things that you can't beat your wife, you know. These are things that we should be making clearer to people and we're not. We're not doing it well enough, but it's a hard, hard to address all that properly. So yeah, I, I, I do have conflicting views about it. I'm, I'm glad they stopped the boats. You know, I think that was terrible business with people dying. And many of the, my friends who came on the boats, they barely survived. They were so happy when the Navy turned up. You know, that was salvation for them. 
And um, so I'm glad they stopped the boats, but I mean, I wish we could allow the people that have come and are here, and there's 50, 60,000 of them that are stuck in Limbo, I wish we could find some way of, of welcoming them in and letting them stay, and letting their children who were born here and are going to school here, let them have a future here where they can get an education. You know, at present, um, if you're one of those boat people, you're not allowed to own property in Australia. An Ayatollah in, in Iran can buy a house in Australia. But, a, but an Iranian Christian who has three children born here and has been living here for seven years and is pastoring a church can't buy a house because the government refuses him the right to own property here. So there's things that, are not, that should change. So it's a really complicated question, I think. Sorry, long answer. But. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for your talk. It was so good. I wish I'd have got all the notes, but uh, no notes today. Um, this might be just slightly off the main uh, subject, but would you dare um, g give us an answer to why is it that uh, Aussies are not generally getting saved, coming to church, Christianity is in decline? Is it because we've failed? Is it because we've lost touch? Or are we too passive? Or, or what? what would you like to say on that? Well, I think it's a whole combination of factors. One is our increasing wealth, and materialism is an important factor in our society. Um, I think Australians, many factors. So another factor is there was a rejection of sectarianism in Australian society because there was so much conflict between Catholics and Protestants and so on. And so some people just stepped away from religion uh, for that reason. Um, uh, there are some people who have been damaged by church. A lot of Catholics have uh, found their experience of Catholicism damaging. So that's, that influences some people. Um, I think I, I, I tried to define Australian culture before, and it doesn't really leave much room for God. This should be right, I'm fine, you're fine, just don't trouble me. Um, so there's that as well. I think um, rock and roll did a lot of damage. In, 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 the church was really slow to respond to the cultural changes that happened after after the 1950s, and um, I think the Pentecostals have responded more when they finally decided not to be count to anti-culture <laughs> and allowed drums and you know bands and whatever in their churches. But um, my, my my denomination was so locked into this romantic view of liturgy and worship using the prayer book um, that it was completely out of out of step with the culture, and so we lost. 30 years of young people uh, because we had nothing to speak to them in their own culture. And the people just gradually stopped going to Evensong and watch TV instead. So, you know, there was, um, there was a huge failure uh, to pass on the faith and to adapt to the rapid cultural changes that were happening. Um, there's been a white anting of the church through liberal theology. It's really interesting comparing Sydney and Brisbane because they both have the same percentage of normal Anglicans but Sydney has twice as many people in church compared to Brisbane, and that's because Sydney Anglicans have preached the gospel and they've, they've presented the Bible, in, whereas the, the, the Brisbane Anglicans generally lost that and they, they, they were more Catholic or liberal in their theology and they've drifted and the, the churches are emptied because of it. I mean, and you know, there are denominations and streams of Christianity in Australia that are growing. The Pentecostals are now the second largest group and they will overtake the Catholics in the next 20 years at current rates of change. Um, so it's not the case that, and some of that's been transfer growth, but a lot of it hasn't. And um, I think also Christianity in Australia, mainstream Christianity became too intellectual 
and uh, didn't really watch work, reach working people. Uh, so that was, a, that was a big factor as well. And it hasn't always been good for men. It's been too feminised in a way. It's ironic because you have all the clergy as men, but the, but the, you know we have 60% women in our church. You know, and so um, I think Pentecostals have often done better with reaching men and providing a community for men. So I think it's a whole complex of issues. There's also the big spiritual warfare issues over a nation. Like what is the nation doing to itself by its public statements, by its leaders, by the wars it's fought, by its attitudes to abortion? Or, or other issues, you know. Um, how is God judging us as a nation? And these, the, the, this is another powerful factor. Another factor was after the two world wars, many of the men um, enjoying, having a lot of trauma and enjoying the company of other men went into Freemasonry. And so Freemasonry just uh, ripped the heart out of Protestant churches all over the country uh, because men got enculturated into this view that all religions are the same, which basically Freemason teaches, and they got ritualized into these cursing rituals. So that's, that's actually hugely powerful. And uh, I mean, that, that's, that movement's in decline now, but the damage has long been done. So I just think there's lots of things. So we just need to pray for the mercy of the Lord. I, and I, see, I also see lots of signs of life here. You know, there's, um, there's, there has been a movement of God to raise up the Pentecostal churches. I praise God for that. And um, without them, Australian Christianity would really be, uh, you know, in, in deep trouble. But basically, the face of the Australian Christianity will be Pentecostal in the, in the decades ahead. They're the, they're the dominant force in the Australian Christian identity. I mean, I saw that coming in the 90s, but at that time, people just couldn't imagine it. But so... Um, so there's all those things. You know, I, as I said before, I see in, in the hearts of people here, many people just concerned about their lies and they're turning to Christ. And so I, I just pray that that will increase, that the Holy Spirit will convict the nation. I mean, Iranians are turning to Jesus in vast numbers, hundreds of thousands, and they're like hungry for God. It's like a moment in history where, where they're ready. And um, I just pray that this in Iran and, and um, millions have turned to Christ. And, um, I just pray that the, that hunger would touch people's lives here, but um, we'll—I mean, we'll—we'll we'll, we'll see. Lots of, so it's, I think it's really complex. Lots and lots of reasons. Mm. Um, this isn't so much a question as more an area that I would just like you to provide a bit of insight into, but there seems to be a big uh, divide in Christians at the moment, in the Christian church. And on the outside, it looks like it's political, like left and right. But I feel like it's got to be something deeper kind of underpinning these two separate movements, I guess. Would you be able to provide some I think one of the deepest, there are all these cultural challenges that I've been speaking about, you know, the view of history and so on. But underpinning it is, is, a, is do you believe that God has spoken through the word? You know, and are you willing to let your world be shaped by the Bible as the word of God? And I think Christians divide on that issue, and that's probably the most fundamental determiner. Um, and when Christians move away from, from the word of God and the authority of the word of God, then they drift into all sorts of other spaces. And some of those other differences you see kind of are a result of that. I mean, that's not only aligned, it's more complex than that, but that's the biggest, that's certainly the issue in the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church all around the world is dividing into two on, on the issue of biblical authority, ultimately. The trigger point is same-sex marriage, but the fundamental issue is biblical authority. 
So in North America, a group has broken away from the Anglicans who were called Episcopalians, and the Anglican Church of North America is now growing and vital, and the Episcopalian Church is dying. I mean, there's the seminary in Boston which had an endowment of 60 million, an Episcopalian ceremony, they shut, because there were no theological students coming. They had all the money they needed, but they couldn't run a seminary. So, um, you know, that, that split is coming here as well. And, uh, and I think the division is happening in the, in the denominations too. You know, the Uniting Church is kind of being pulled apart and people have been leaving it for a long time. And um, I hope the Pentecostals hold strong, you know, and that they can hold, hold on to a strong view of biblical authority. They might not, it's possible that, you know, people can drift. I pray that won't happen, but yeah, so that's a big issue. Uh, you know, it's really, do you believe God has spoken and that he's spoken the truth to us and that we should allow that truth to shape our lives and guide us even, even when it's costly and, and difficult and even if we're against the current. The thing that's the kiss of death is the view that if only we embrace the culture and become like the culture, we will be loved and we will be happy and we will grow. And we have people in the Anglican Church who constantly say that. We should embrace the culture and that's why people aren't coming to church anymore. But in fact, the more you can embrace the culture in some ways, like, you know, have a drum kit in your church or whatever. But um, if you just buy into every ideology of the culture and every progressive trend, you will, no one will go to church. Because why bother? You know, you can, you can just be an Aussie and have a barbecue on Sunday morning instead. If, if all the church is doing is just echoing what the culture is, it's pointless. And it's very costly being a Christian. It's, that Sunday morning time is pretty precious, especially if you've been working during the week and you've got a family and, you know, they, they ask you to tithe, for goodness sake, you know, and it's not cheap, you know, it's, 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 it's expensive and it's, and it's time as well. And, you know, it, it's, uh, if people think that it doesn't make a difference what you believe, then why, why go, you know? So that's, um, that, 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 yeah, the people, if you hear someone saying, oh, the reasons we, we're just not, uh, you know, getting with the times, then whatever they're part of is going to die. Mm. I really loved what you said about that thing because I think we do totally need to be separated from the world and set ourselves apart um, as a church. Um, but my question is, uh, I always think about the scripture. Um, I know when I speak to people about the Lord, the scripture, um, I think it was Paul where he says, um, you know, I didn't come to you with eloquent words or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Ghost. And I wonder when you speak to people, is it always about a worldview or a doctrinal point of view? And where does experience encounter, you know, to have a power health- of the Holy Ghost come in and in that moment? To have a healthy theology, which is a spiritual worldview, you need to integrate your experience, the Word of God, the teachings of the church, and also your mind, engage your mind. You need to pull these together into a whole. And those are essential. I believe in an experiential Christianity. Uh, We've seen many, many miracles in ministry. Uh, And um, uh, it's been wonderful. And I've never seen so many. Every year there's more, you know, and I believe in a God who shows up, and for me, that's really held me in the church, is to answers to prayer. And uh, for all the failings of the church, God loves the church, and I see him at work in it, so that's where I turn up. And um, so, yeah, that, that's really central for me, absolutely. And, uh, and that's been a problem in answer to 
um, the other question, whole sections of the Australian church have walked away from an experiential God, you know, and that's, that's a problem, you know, um, and because God is a God who shows up. That's the way I think about it. God turns up in our circumstances. He's not a, a God far off. He's a God who comes in flesh and spirit and power and grace. And that's what we need to walk in. And, you know, that's really important if you're having these apologetic, these conversations with people and challenging their worldview. You need to believe the Holy Spirit is present, that there's a divine encounter with godly truth that's taking place. And if you have that faith, God will, that will happen. God will, God will be at work. And I'm, I'm 100% a believer in the power of God. And without, without God, you can do nothing, nothing. You know, so all this cleverness and ability and PhDs is just rubbish. If, you, if God isn't work, if the Holy Spirit isn't work, you, you, that's absolutely essential. But the thing is, the spirit flourishes in, in human existence when we are built on the truth. If our lives are, are built on truth, then, then we experience the true freedom of God. But if we're held captivity in lies, Satan kind of hammers us on all those points. And instead of being a consecrated house to the Lord, we are, we, our house becomes damaged and kind of you know, desecrated, really. And so that's that part of the challenge, you know. I think, is it Peter that speaks about offering ourselves for noble purposes in the house of God? Uh, and that, that's a calling to, to be open to that and, and dedicated to that, yeah. We'll um, just take one last question. Um, hi, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, uh, my pleasure. It has been incredibly um, fascinating. Um, I've got a... I work in the, um, for the company with the multicultural um, uh, dynamics, and, and one of them is uh, Islam. Um, I've got a lady who came um, with a different different background, and also with um, the belief that she's not important, and um, knowing that she has no rights or voice. And here I am um, betraying my values and my beliefs, saying, "Well." Um, in exchange of what we both believe, um, we have, she find that incredibly fascinating and too good to be true, that wow, women have a voice um, and they do have value and they're worth it. Um, so she find it challenging going back to uh, say her family and trying to explain to them, hey, I'm I deserve to be, I think I deserve to be treated better than you treat me. So I, th I suppose um, the que my, my question is, is, is there a way to peacefully build that bridge between the family, hear, hear what she's starting to believe about herself and the family and the background that they have grown up with and and culture that they've been brought up with. Is that, is that helping us? It's what tricky, isn't it? Because it is. she's yes. been taught to believe that she has no worth. That's and, right. And that's embedded in the culture. You're teaching her that she could have worth and be a person of value. And what's more, she's seeing you and it's making her hungry for something she wasn't, she didn't ever think was possible. So this could create a lot of problems for her um, in that she will reach out for something better. I'd just be praying that she has wisdom in doing that and that her family will um, be able to hear her and not just beat her up or, you know, suppress her. It's really hard and you can't um, not speak the truth to people just because they're in that sort of situation. I think you need to share the love of God with her and, and also be kind to her and pray for her and not ask too much of her as well. 
I wouldn't be urging her to go to, you know, start a revolution in her own home because it could endanger her life and her well-being. Um, but, you know, her, your friendship with you could give her hope and, uh, and that's very powerful. And, you know, she might actually say, I, I think I need to follow Jesus. I can... Many Muslim women hate Islam for the reason that they blame it, especially people like from Iran, because they can see that the religions caused this. But they're, they're trapped. It's often the case when you're in an abusive situation, you, it's very hard to name the nature of your abuse. But, yeah, well, good on you. Just, just, just love her and encourage her and um, support her, pray for her. And, I mean, even if things are grim at home, and she obviously knows how to survive in that environment, uh, the opportunity to come and speak with you and to be able to speak freely about what's on her heart could be a lifesaver for her. Um, so I just encourage you to support her and pray for her. Yeah. Yeah, I've helped a lot of, you know, abused women, not just from an Islamic background. It's really complicated, and she's got a lot of people, and you can't push people to do something that they're not safe to do or not ready to do. Mm. Excellent. Let's put our hands together. Thank you very, very much.